0: When Felipe Espinoza and younger brother Vivian were feeling bloody, the bodies were sure to follow. And in the spring and summer of 1863, there was certainly no shortage of bodies. The murderous duo would even leave macabre calling cards of sorts, like in the case of Will Bruce, who was found with a crude crucifix of twigs protruding out of the bullet hole in his skull. Or poor Henry Harkins, who had his head split in two with an axe and the sign of a cross carved into his chest. Some victims were shot at long distances, while others were casualties of more close-in work, with a blade or axe. And most were mutilated, beheaded, disemboweled, desecrated, or otherwise molested. Hell, some even had their hearts cut out. Like I said, Felipe Espinoza and his brother Vivian were feeling bloody. But make no mistake about it, it wasn't a murder spree they were on, at least not in their deranged minds. Nah, it was a quest for revenge, a violent righting of wrongs. A noble undertaking to punish the world for its transgressions, both real and perceived. Who were the bloody Espinosa brothers? What caused their murderous tirade? And what or who put a stop to it? Stay tuned to find out. My name's Josh and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Felipe Nerio Espinoza had a chip on his shoulder, one fueled by a strange sense of patriotism mixed with religious fanaticism. Born north of Santa Fe in present-day New Mexico in 1827, young Felipe would lose six family members during the Mexican-American War. Casualties that caused him to burn with hatred. A smoldering madness that was possibly further exasperated by his induction into a religious society known as the Santa Hermanidad de la Sangria de Nuestra Señor Jesus Cristo. For those of you who don't speak Espanol, that roughly translates to the holy brotherhood of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, a strangely zealous group of flagellants, also known as the penitentes or the penitents. Self-flagellation, by the way, is the act of severely punishing oneself, often physically, in the form of flogging or whipping. Sounds kinky, I know, but in Felipe's case, it was done in the name of religion. And maybe I shouldn't call the practice strange. I mean, who am I to judge? But, you got to admit, it is a little peculiar. In addition to flogging themselves during religious ceremonies and leaving their backs a bloody mess, these flagellant guys were also known to place rocks in their shoes and even have themselves bound to wooden crosses as sort of a reenactment of the sufferings of Christ. Don't let Felipe Espinoza's religious fervor fool you, though. He weren't no prude. Quite the opposite, in fact. Seems he was the romantic type. Wait till you find out how he landed his wife. Single guys, you're going to want to take notes here. And all you ladies listening might want to put a towel down for this one. It's a real panty soaker. In the 1850s, a very amorous 26-year-old Felipe broke into 17-year-old Maria Hurtado's home, taking her and her 11-year-old sister hostage. Oh yeah, now we're talking. Felipe knew that women like a take-charge kind of guy. And what better way to show a woman who's in control than by kidnapping her and beating her, brutally, which is just what Felipe did to Maria, or so the story goes. Finally, just to sort of seal the deal and really win her over, Felipe agreed to release the little sister to their father, in exchange for Maria's hand in marriage, of course. Ah, young love. And they say romance is dead. The gentleman suitor and his lady love would move north into the San Luis Valley after their nuptials, not far from present day Antonito, Colorado, where Felipe would try his hand at being a bean farmer. Yes, a bean farmer. I guess you could say he transitioned from being a flagellant to a flatulent. Ha <laughs> ha! Come on, that was a solid joke. Alright, turns out farming beans is hard work though. Felipe would abandon that endeavor in 1862 when he and little brother Vivian decided to pursue easier money and possibly get a little bit of revenge while they were at it. Vivian, by the way, was four years younger than Felipe. The pair would end up robbing a teamster just south of Santa Fe, and after absconding the driver of his valuables, Brothers Espinosa tied the poor bastard to the underside of a wagon tongue and then whipped the mules, causing them to gallop down the road, the teamster just helplessly bobbing up and down and being plowed through rocks and dirt. It doesn't take a genius to tell that Felipe Espinosa was a bit of a sadist, you know, someone who enjoys inflicting pain, both on himself and others. It wasn't enough to take what he wanted by force, but he also had to get a little something extra out of it as well. Now, I'm no doctor, but methinks this guy probably couldn't get a boner any other way. But that's none of my business. No, but in all seriousness, Felipe did have a motive of sorts for his acts of violence. One that made sense to him, at least. And we will talk more about his possible motives later in this episode, as well as exploring that maybe, just maybe, history has this guy all wrong. But till then, let's just do a quick rundown, okay? The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which I've touched on briefly in previous episodes, was signed in 1848 at the tail end of the Mexican-American War. In addition to offering citizenship to Mexicans who found themselves living in U.S. territory once the hostilities were over, it also ensured that they'd be able to keep all the land they owned prior to the war. Unfortunately, this treaty, like many others, was not fully honored. And there in the San Luis Valley in Southern Colorado, many Hispanic families, like the Espinozas, found themselves, for lack of better words, shit out of luck. Not only was their land taken, but they were now subject to all kinds of new laws and taxes, and there were even rumors that their young men would be conscripted into the U.S. military. Transgressions compounded by the fact that Felipe lost six members of his own family to the hostilities. Tossed in some rape, actual literal rape, of close female relatives, and I think we could all understand Felipe's anger. He wanted to strike out against those who represented this regime that caused he and his loved ones so much pain. Only problem was that some of Espinosa's victims, like that poor teamster I just mentioned, were Hispanic. And maybe it's just me, but killing your own seems like a funny way of getting even with the gringos. That mule skinner survived, by the way. He was only drugged a few miles before someone else spotted him and came to his aid. And he was able to identify his assailants. Colorado being just a territory at this time, and a wild one at that, the burden of enforcing the law fell upon the military. As such, a detachment of soldiers at a nearby Fort Garland soon paid Felipe and his brother a visit at their home, pretending to be army recruiters, a guise that the ever-observant bandits quickly saw through. The duo opened up fire on the soldiers from the window of their cabin, and as long-suffering Maria and the children ducked for cover, Felipe and Vivian made their way out back and into the forest, and they kept on a-fleeing, deep into the Sangre de Cristo mountain range, an aptly named, ragged, and untamed area that was a perfect base of operations. Now, that gunfight there at the Espinosa home, that was in March of 1863. Not only is this when the Espinosa brothers' crime spree really kicked off, but it's also about the time that Felipe lost all semblance of sanity, or so it seems. For the record, his obsession with the crimes committed against he and his family does not strike me as crazy. I imagine I'd be very angry as well. What does seem a tad off, however, is Felipe claiming that the Virgin Mary appeared to him in a dream ordering him to kill 600 gringos. 100 for each of the six family members killed during the war. Oh boy. And for his part, Felipe seemed determined to fill that quota. He and Vivian wasted no time in stalking and killing miners and whoever else they could catch there in the Southern Rockies. Like I mentioned earlier, shooting them, stabbing them, cutting up, and mutilating the bodies with crucifixes. Gruesome work that soon caused the local newspapers to refer to the brothers as the Axemen of Colorado. One reporter from Denver's Rocky Mountain News wrote, quote, All from the beginning have been marked with a peculiar singularity, the most fiendish and diabolical atrocity. In some cases, the amount of money or valuables has been so trifling that it seems incredible that it should excite the cupidity of the most black hearted murderer to commit so terrible a crime. End quote. Man, I gotta love how these old West reporters wrote the language they used, you know, kind of reminds me of A.W. Merrick, that uh, newspaper man from HBO's Deadwood. So yeah. In other words, the Espinozas didn't seem to be motivated by financial reasons so much as revenge or just killing for the sake of killing. It turns out Felipe Espinosa was quite the wordsmith himself. Not only did he go on a letter-writing campaign to Colorado Territorial Governor John Evans, but he also kept a diary of sorts, or a manifesto, in which he scribbled down all sorts of bizarro assertions, including bragging about how many people he and his brother killed. In one entry, Felipe wrote, quote, They ruined our family. They took everything. Seeing this, we said we would rather be dead than see such infamies committed on our families. In killing, one gains his liberty. I am aware that you know of some that I have killed, but others you don't know. It is a sufficient number, however. Ask in New Mexico if any other two men have ever been known to have killed as many as the Espinozas. We have killed 32. As you can probably imagine, everyday normal people there in Colorado were terrified. And it didn't make matters any better when one considers the description of Felipe Espinosa. Or should I say the lack of description? You know, we don't know how tall he was or whether he was slender or rotund or even how long his hair was. The only description that has survived over the years is that of his smile. Witnesses, or at least those who survived, would tell of Espinoza's overdeveloped jaw and toothy jack-o'-lantern grin. Ugh. So yeah, of course people there in Colorado were on edge. They were so on edge, in fact, that they went ahead and accidentally, on purpose, lynched a few strangers they found traveling the roads, just to be on the safe side. Obviously, something had to be done. in Captain John McCannon of the 3rd Colorado Cavalry, he and a volunteer posse caught up with the Espinosas sometime either in late April or early May of 1863. Sneaking up close, the vigilantes sprung their ambush. Only problem was, they didn't wait for the right opportunity. Instead of cutting both brothers down under a hell of fire, they were only able to kill Vivian, allowing the meanest of the pair, old crazy-ass Felipe, to escape once again to the wilderness. And if you don't believe me when I say that Felipe was nuttier than a squirrel turd, consider what he did next. After eluding the soldiers, he returned to the scene of the ambush, dug up his brother's body, and cut off one of his feet to take with him as a keepsake. I rest my case, your honor. Full disclosure, I also read another account stating that it wasn't a foot, but it was an arm that Felipe took with him. It's also important to note that stories like this are anecdotal. When it comes to guys like Felipe Espinoza, there's a certain amount of urban legend that gets thrown into the mix over the years, so there's no way of actually proving whether or not he desecrated his brother's grave. I'll even go so far as to say that much more of the Espinosa story is unverifiable. So as always, feel free to fact check me and do your own research. By the way, these men, under Captain McCannon would also discover Felipe's diary, or man journal, if you want to sound cooler, after the ambush. And after Vivian's death, things did quiet down for a little while. I guess Felipe was mourning. Once again, those damn gringos had taken another family member from him. But he did soon find a replacement in the form of his 14-year-old nephew, Jose Espinoso. Beloved uncle and nephew would continue the killing spree, but the dynamic was off. Either that, or Felipe had lost his touch. Either way, he started getting sloppy. In October, after drinking a little bit too much tequila, the Espinosa's decided to hold up a wagon. Instead of making things easy and just allowing Felipe to kill and mutilate him, the wagon's passengers, a man and a woman, both scattered off in opposite directions, running for their lives. Initially, Felipe and Jose took off after the man, but soon enough gave up and went after the lady instead. They found her, Dolores Sanchez was her name, by the way. And they raped her multiple times before she too was able to escape, finding her way to Fort Garland and sharing her story. The man who escaped also made it to Fort Garland. You know, both of them lucky to be alive, but probably scared out of their damn minds. And once again, the army was called on to take care of business. Kind of. The commander at Fort Garland, a guy by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Tappan, farmed the job out to a civilian scout he had worked with before, a fur trapper and frontiersman named Tom Tobin. Thomas Tate. Tobin, to be exact. old TTT, as I like to call him. And oh boy, let me tell y'all about Tom Tobin. How this guy isn't more well-known is beyond me. Well, I guess I do know. Part of the reason is because he was good friends with Kit Carson, and I reckon it's easy for most men to be lost in such an overwhelming shadow. But Tobin absolutely deserves a little bit of the limelight, and that's just what I'm going to try to give him today. Born in 1823, Tom Tobin was 40 years old when he took to hunting Felipe Espinosa. And from what little we know of the man's life, Felipe didn't have an ice cubes chance in hell. Tom was the son of an Irish immigrant and a Lenape, or Delaware, mother. Came west at the age of 14 and started trapping beaver around Bent's Ford and Taos. Like many other fur trappers working down in present-day New Mexico, Tobin married a Hispanic lady. And once the beaver started petering out, he started doing side jobs for the army. By 1846, he was delivering dispatches for General Stephen Kearney all the way to Fort Leavenworth. And not too long after that, Tobin found himself and a few other old trappers holed up in Simon Turley's Mill and Distillery, just north of Taos. It seems that the Pueblo had risen up in anger and began slaughtering the citizens of Taos, including Tobin's good friend, then-Governor Charles Bent. Following day, a large force of Pueblo and Mexican insurrectionists Surrounded the mill where Tobin was forded up, and after an intense all-day battle, only he and one other man were able to escape with their lives, on foot and in the dark. Fur trader Saran St. Vrain then organized a volunteer force with the goal of helping the U.S. military retake Taos. And Tom Tobin was there for it, putting his skills to use scouting for St. Vrain and helping to capture and execute some of these agitators. Following the hostilities, Tom settled down and, just like Felipe Espinosa, tried his hand at farming. And just like Espinosa, it was a short-lived venture. Either Tom didn't take to being a plowboy, or the call of the wild was just too strong. It wasn't too long before he was back scouting and working as a dispatch for Lieutenant Colonel William Giplin, carrying communications from Fort Bent to the Canadian River Valley in present-day Oklahoma, and back. Much like Kit Carson and all those old mountain men, Tobin couldn't read or write, but he had much of this treacherous terrain mapped out in his head. And what's more, he knew how to survive in such an environment. Needless to say, there just weren't a whole hell of a lot of men with Tom Tobin's unique skill set. Next up, he took more work as a guide for a major beal, scouting for an expedition looking to find a railroad route to California. Speaking of Tobin, the major said he had a, quote, reputation almost equal to Kit Carson's for bravery, dexterity with a rifle, and skill in mountain life, end quote. Remember what I said about living under Kit Carson's shadow? Dude couldn't even get a compliment without first being compared to Kit Carson. So as you can see, by the time 1863 came around, Tom Tobin had built quite a name for himself. He could scout, he could fight, he knew his way around the mountains, and he could track a grasshopper through sagebrush, or at least that's what they say. And the man had nerves of steel. Of course, he'd be an obvious choice to go after the diabolical Felipe Espinosa. I do have to wonder if they asked Kit to do it first, though. What's that? Carson's busy? (sighs) Okay, I, uh, I guess we'll ask Tobin then. So it was in mid-October of 1863 that Tom Tobin set out from Fort Garland on the hunt and with 15 U.S. soldier boys in tow. Tobin didn't want to bring the mostly green troops. Said they'd just slow him down and besides, he worked better alone. But Lieutenant Colonel Tappan had insisted and Tom Tobin wasn't the type to argue with other grown men. And I can't say as I blame him. I too have better things to do than bicker with hard-headed individuals that think they know everything. So instead of refusing the soldiers, Tom just pushed them. Hard. So hard, in fact, that he soon had to send several of them back to the fort due to exhaustion. This was serious work manhunting, and Tobin didn't have time to babysit. For three days, he pushed on, only allowing for a few hours of sleep each night, and certainly not stopping for three square meals a day. Pretty sure a nice fire every evening was out of the question as well. Finally, on the third day, Tobin noticed some magpies circling in the distance and the faint smell of smoke and cooking meat. Ordering the soldiers to stay put, Tom inched forward, Indian style. Creeping in close and staying low, trusty Hawkin rifle in hand. And just a quick side note, I found it very interesting that Tom Tobin would still be carrying an old school Hawken rifle in 1863. The soldiers he left back with the horses would have all most likely been armed with more modern 1861 Springfield rifles. And at this time, Henry Repeating rifles were also available. But then I'm reminded about how I recently learned that Jim Bridger, one of Tobin's peers, also preferred the old reliable and rifle, even still carrying one as late as 1865 when he was scouting for the army. These men, you know, guys like Bridger and Tobin, had dropped many a target over the last few decades with a muzzleloader. So I guess the idea was why change now, you know? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Anyway, back to the story. As Tom snuck closer, he spied his prey. Both Felipe and young Jose were lounging around the fire cooking dinner. One has to wonder what Tom Tobin thought. Did he consider the bandits brazen fools for not being more discreet? Or did he give them any thought at all? You know, was what he was about to do, just a mechanical going through the motions kind of thing, in the same way you and I will just swat a fly? We'll never know. But what we do know is that as soon as Felipe stood to his feet, Tobin squeezed the trigger, sending a ball to the killer's side and toppling him over into the fire. Poor Jose, probably regretting his decision to join his lunatic uncle, jumped to his feet and took off running towards cover. He wouldn't make it, though. Either Tobin had a spare rifle or he was lightning quick at reloading that hawking because he soon sent another ball down range. This one severing Jose's spine and dropping him to the ground like a rag doll. Those of you listening who are hunters know how a spine shot will do just that. By this point, Felipe was still clinging to life and dragging himself out of the fire as Tobin walked into camp, approaching like some sort of a buckskin-clad grim reaper. Do you know who I am? He asked Espinosa. Bruto, Bruto, Felipe responded. Now, I looked up the Spanish to English translation of the word bruto, and there are several definitions. Stupid, gross, crude, raw, coarse, and just like it sounds, brutish. Not sure which Felipe meant, but brutish sounds about right, as it literally means a savagely violent person or animal. And considering how Tobin quickly and single-handedly snuffed out the Espinosa's, the definition fits. No word on whether or not Tobin replied. Story goes that he simply walked up to Felipe, grabbed him by the hair, and bent his head over a log before bringing down his blade, hacking away and fully severing Bandit's head. He then likewise separated Jose's head from his torso as well. Once back at Fort Garland, Tom Tobin presented himself to the good colonel, who was surprised to see the half-breed trapper back so soon. Any luck, Tom? asked Tappen. Oh, so-so, replied Tobin, as he unshouldered the burlap sack turning it upside down and allowing the severed heads of Felipe and Jose Espinosa to come tumbling out, rolling to the floor. And just like that, the reign of Colorado's axemen was no more. As for Tom Tobin, he became pretty well known after this incident, at least there in southern Colorado. He never did receive the reward money for killing Felipe, though. I forgot to mention that. Evidently, the bounty on Espinosa had risen to over $5,000. Thing was, though, Colorado's territorial government was broke, thanks mostly to the ongoing civil war. Later, as a bit of an appeasement, they did present Tom with a brand new Henry rifle and a fancy coat, just like the coat owned by Kit Carson. Fuck, man, that Kit Carson shadow strikes again. Now, supposedly Tobin would claim that he didn't even know there was a bounty on Espinosa's head, and years later, there would be a collection raised from several different donors, but that final purse presented to Tom only made up about half of the initial bounty. This five minutes of fame didn't phase Tobin, though. He was soon back to doing what he was best at, guiding for the army. Matter of fact, just a few years later, he'd be working alongside Buffalo Bill Cody and another scout, a younger man by the name of James Butler, who some folks had taken to calling Wild Bill. And Tobin would live a very long time after taking out the Espinozas. At some point, he quit scouting for good and started a large ranch, as well as spending some time as the president of the Costilla County Colorado School Board, despite not knowing how to read or write. But even Tobin's twilight years weren't without violence, all thanks to Kit Carson once again, kind of. Old Kit passed away just a few years after Tobin beheaded Felipe Espinoza. But remember, the two men were very close. So close, in fact, that Tom's daughter, Pasqualia, married Carson's son, Billy. Tobin, like many of you listening, was very protective of his daughter. So, you know, when he caught wind that Billy Carson was abusing his baby girl, Tom went on the hunt. He cornered Billy and pulled a knife out on him. But time waits for no man, and we all slip. The 65-year-old Tobin wasn't as quick as he once was, and Billy got the drop on him, evading the blade and bringing down a hammer down on Tom's head. And then, just to be on the safe side, he shot his father-in-law as well. Old Tom Tobin was tough, though. Despite the May 4, 1888 issue of New York Times reporting that the famous old scout was killed by Kit Carson's son, Tom pulled through. Hell, he and Billy Carson even patched things up just a few days later. Unfortunately, a year later, Billy would pass away from Lockjaw, which he got from accidentally shooting himself in the leg. Finally, in 1904, 16 years after being hammered and shot, Tom Tobin passed away at the age of 81 and was laid to rest in the MacMullen Cemetery just outside of Fort Garland, Colorado. As far as the severed heads of the Espinozas go, that's a mystery in and of itself. Some say they were placed in jars of liquor where they made the rounds traveling and being put on display, only to eventually end up in the basement of the state capitol building there in Colorado, where they were accidentally disposed of years later. And take this next part with a grain of salt. Some say the severed heads still haunt the building. Speaking of hauntings, for years after the death of Felipe Espinoza, locals report sightings of headless horsemen riding around the mountains near the location of he and Jose's death. I don't know about that. Me personally, I've never been scared of ghosts or the boogeyman. There's too many real flesh and blood monsters out there to be afraid of. People I most definitely don't want to bump into in the middle of the night. Guys like Felipe Espinosa. And if I do, I hope the one ghost I have in my corner is that of Tom Tobin. All right, just a few other things to touch on. Felipe Espinosa, with the help of his brother Vivian and later nephew Jose, was said to have killed 32 people. And just over the course of about 12 months. Now that's one hell of a murder spree. And one thing I've seen that keeps popping up about Felipe while doing this research was that he was America's first serial killer. I'd like to point out that is not true. I'm not really sure what the prerequisite is to have that honor of being America's first serial killer bestowed on you, but the infamous Harp brothers were robbing and killing people over in Appalachia, at least 39 victims, possibly as many as 50, well before Felipe Espinosa was ever born. All right, now that I got that out of the way, one more thing. I do strive to be as accurate as possible on this podcast despite my lack of education and lack of time. With that in mind, I do feel like it's my duty to mention that not everybody agrees with the narrative that I just spun when it comes to Felipe Espinoza. Which makes sense, right? I mean, there's always two sides to every story. In Felipe's case, he has many descendants still alive to this day. And many of them have a different version of how things went down. Or I guess I should say a different explanation. They don't so much deny that Felipe killed anybody, but it looks like they feel it's important to point out that he was somewhat justified in his own eyes. Just like I touched on earlier, the Espinozas had land taken from them, as well as other property like food and supplies. And then there's those family members that Felipe lost during the war. And then finally, the stories passed down through the generations state that one, if not several of Felipe's female relatives were raped by U.S. soldiers. As such, some of the Espinosa descendants say that Felipe was more of a guerrilla fighter than a murderer. To further complicate matters, it does look like Tom Tobin was related to Felipe through marriage, and that he lent financial support to the Espinosa family for years after the bandit's death. Also, some of Felipe's kin claim that the two were actually friends at one point, and that Tom Tobin was more of a traitor than a hero. Remember, a lot of this is based on oral stories passed down through the generations. But I read the account of Espinosa's family members being raped too many times to just completely dismiss it. There's got to be a kernel of truth in there somewhere. And wherever the truth lies, and despite how crazy Felipe Espinosa seemed, it does look like he felt justified that he was acting out of revenge. If the stories are true about how he himself raped that one lady, or, you know, all the murders and mutilations that he took part in, it really doesn't matter what his motivation is, though. At least not to me. Two wrongs don't make a right. At least that's what my mamaw always told me. Anyway, I just wanted to share all that in the name of fairness. So what do you think? By the way, many of Felipe Espinoza's victims also have descendants still alive. And Tom Tobin and Kit Carson both live on through their descendants as well. Kind of interested to see if any of them hear this and contact me. If you are on either side of this Espinoza story and you've got some inside information or family lore to share with me, please don't hesitate. All right, y'all, I guess that's about all I've got on Tom Tobin and the more than likely bloody Espinoza's. If you like what you hear, please share this podcast with somebody. If you're on Facebook, get in some of those Wild West groups or Old West history groups and share links to this podcast if it's not breaking any rules. As always, I want to thank all of y'all for listening. This is episode 50, by the way, and I truly can't believe we made it all the way to episode 50. Seems like just the other day I had it in mind that I was just going to do 30 episodes and call it quits. But here we is. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to those of you who actually listened to the last episode on Commodore Perry Owens. It's kind of weird wrapping my head around the idea that people listen to this podcast not just for the topics, but to hear me talk about the topics. That will never not blow my mind. So it was nice having people notice that last episode obviously wasn't hosted by yours truly. So those of you who listened, thank you. I thought Michael did a great job, and I hope y'all do check out his podcast. I'm a big fan. And then again, I'm a Texan, so I like Texas history. And I particularly like Michael's take on Texas history as well as his excellent taste in music. Remember, it was a podcast swap, which means I hosted an episode of Michael's podcast, Texas History Lessons. It's available anywhere you listen to this podcast, except for YouTube, I think. I'm not sure if that episode's on YouTube yet. But if you're interested in hearing me talk about the 1919 Texas Ranger investigation or the Canales hearings, please visit TexasHistoryLessons.com and give that episode a listen. I will also leave a link in this episode's show notes. It's a part of Texas history that very, very few people really know about, sadly. You know, they didn't teach us this stuff back in school, and for good reason. A lot of people want to forget it ever happened. All right, I'd also like to give a shout out to Hot Spur Leather Works. This guy emailed me recently and has some very nice words to say about the podcast, so I thought I'd share his little side hustle. He's a working man just like me who makes wallets in his free time, so check him out. Give some of them 110% genuine human skin wallets. Uh, just kidding. I'm pretty sure it's all made out of animal hide. Hopefully. i also like to give a shout out to Andrew C. from Dublin, Ireland. Ah, the mother country. That little emerald isle is where my people came from a few hundred years ago. Now, thankfully, I didn't end up with the Irish curse, but I got enough of that blood in me that the sound of bagpipes does get my juices flowing. Shout out to all the usual suspects. Neil M., Don Hoagland, Chris B., Chris J, Preacher Mars, Mark W, Dan M, Todd M, Ricardo V, Carl, Tony, Kenneth, Man of Enchantment, Jamie, Keith, and Skinny Dicks halfway in. The boys at the Outlaw Saloon in San Antonio, Texas. Everybody on YouTube. Sly, a spy, MMA, Dennis Dollar, Johnny, Krishanu, Roeanne Hussey, Alberto, Bad Rim, History Nerd, Corey Hughes, Lane, McDaniel Ranch, Crazy Ass Dwayne Carpenter, Eric Simpson, Tom Detroit, Joe Ross, Ferengi, Faceless AI, welcome back to the world, my brother, Steve Reeves, Plymouth Duster, Middle American, Roberta, Marvin Samples, Danny Simmons, and the great and powerful Art Lucero, and everybody else I forget to mention. I love y'all. I couldn't have made it to episode 50 without your support. Also, a big shout out to Adam James Jones, whose research helped me immensely on this episode. Check out his article I linked to in this episode's show notes. And speaking of Man of Enchantment, it was he who helped inspire me to do this episode. I've been familiar with Tobin for a while, but kind of sort of put it on the back burner. That's how this thing works, you know, I got a loose idea in mind of what my future topics are going to be, but every now and then I'll get interested in something and I don't want to wait. I want to type it out and talk about it right now. So that's how y'all got this episode. Listen, Chief Joseph is coming. Barring a natural disaster or some type of emergency, the next episode of Wild West Extravaganza will be on Chief Joseph. Maybe. Till then, try not to go crazy and write a manifesto and start murdering people. And remember, too much self-flagellation will make you go blind. Adios.